It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA. Agent Ether. Agent Kruger. And Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Discord and Facebook. Links in the description. This week's episode... The Mantell Incident. All right, we got a good one for you this week. This is the only case I can think of off the top of my head anyways. I mean, maybe there's something else out there where somebody actually died in the pursuit of a UFO. Oh, wait, spoiler alerts. Did I I just ruin it for you? Okay, well. (laughs) You ruined it, dude. Case closed. I'm gone. (laughs) Short, Short episode this week. You lost me. But yeah, so we're talking about this week, the Mantell incident. It's an interesting one. On the surface, it's pretty easily explainable. But when you dig down a little bit leap, uh, leaper, le- leaper, leaper, deeper, if, when you dig huh? down just a little bit deeper, as we will do, it becomes a very interesting case. Mm-hmm, absolutely. When I f- uh, first started looking at this, I, I was kind of like, ah, yes, yeah, it's pretty easily ex- explainable but then as you you take a look at the uh, the surrounding circumstances and directions in which things were observed or what have you and we'll get into it of course like it becomes way more complicated and like yeah it's it is a very very interesting case yeah and i found out this was a case that really because someone died brought seriousness kind of like to the whole ufo phenomena Back in the 40s, that really kind of changed public opinion at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people began to take it a lot more seriously when people started dying. Well, when a person person died. Before this, the general attitude towards it was very, I don't know, very kind of goofy, you know. But the this sort of changed that, and it became a lot less goofy after this incident. I think people started worrying that maybe it wasn't all just fun games and friendlies. Yeah, or... Maybe there was a threat. Yeah, definitely a change in government and, you know, civilian perceptions of UFOs overall. But quite fascinating. Yeah. So what are we talking about? The Mantell incident. Let's get into it. This happened on January 7th, 1948. It started around 1,300 hours. I've been reading this stuff all day in military time, so (laughs) that's what we're using. But no, 1,300 hours would be 1 o'clock in the afternoon. About 1 o'clock, the Kentucky State Police reported an object near Elizabethtown. Ten minutes later, it was sighted near Madisonville. A A third call reported it over Lexington. It was circular, 250 to 300 feet in diameter. All of these areas are south of Godman Air Force Base. It was eventually reported to them to the tower at Godman Air Force Base. And they cited the object, you know, they because they were getting reports from the police, they went and looked for it. And they were able to cite it at around 1445, which is 245 in the afternoon. They they notified Colonel Hicks, who was into a tower, he went to the tower, um, the control tower, 
and uh, he saw it both with his eyes, naked eyes, and through binoculars. It was very white and looked like an umbrella. He said it was about one-fourth the size of the full moon, which is the full moon is about uh, 30 arc seconds, so that would be approximately, I don't know what, 7.5 arc seconds or something of angular size. Which I don't know what that means, but <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree uh, with stuff. Yeah, <laughs> too bad he couldn't hit eight arc seconds. <laughs> well, I was I was looking into a particular angle of the case, which I I just I didn't have the mathematical background to to finish, but maybe I'll get into that a little bit later, a little bit later. But anyways, it was stationary, or so he saw it. He said through binoculars, it sometimes had a red border at the top and sometimes a red border at the bottom. And based on his statement, it didn't have it at both times. It, it would appear, but uh, I don't really know what to make of that detail, but that's just kind of what he said. It, it's unclear as to, you know, if it was red at the top and bottom at the same time, and it's unclear as to what that would mean anyways. So he said it was stationary for 1.5 hours. And when it did move, it moved at approximately 180 miles an hour, which that's a nice little clip there. You know, you're a good, good, fast sports car or something. That's not, that's not slow. Nope, it isn't. So what object could just, you know, kind of hover around for 1.5 hours or maybe move at 180 miles an hour? I uh, think That's not Venus. your grandma's station wagon. Yeah, Venus. Yeah, it is Venus. Venus. Yeah, that's Weather what I've been balloons. trying to tell you. You know, yeah, station wagons, weather balloons, helicopters maybe. I don't know. The object was reportedly followed by the Kentucky State Patrol on the ground and airplanes who were already in the air. There was a squadron of P-51 Mustangs that were flying over the area at the time, and they were asked to change course and investigate the object. Just a couple of a couple of witness statements in real brief. We'll get into more details in this later, but... Sergeant Quentin Blackwell saw it from the control tower at Fort Knox. Witnesses at Clinton County Army Airfield in Ohio saw it and reported that it looked like a flaming red cone trailing a green gaseous mist. Does that sound familiar? Anybody who's listened to this show for a while may find some similarities to the Portage County UFO chase, but um, that's for, you know, a discussion for another time, perhaps. Anyways, they observed it for about 35 minutes. An observer at Lockbourne Army Airfield in Ohio saw it just before leaving. Uh, they saw it and they said that just before leaving, it came to very near the ground, staying down for about 10 seconds, and then climbed at a very fast rate back to its original altitude of 10,000 feet, leveling off and disappearing into the overcast, heading 120 degrees. Its speed was greater than 500 miles an hour in level flight. So that's um, probably not Venus, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's an interesting, another interesting little statement there from a witness. The general path of the object, which, so I found, this is from the Blue Book files, and these times don't necessarily match up to reported sightings elsewhere. And I did notice an awful lot of typos in this blue book file, so take it with a grain of salt. But apparently it was seen at uh, 7.20, which would be, you know, 7.20 in the morning, at Edwardsville, Illinois, for 30 minutes. And then it was seen later at 1 o'clock at Elizabethtown, 1.10 at Lexington and Madisonville, uh, 2 o'clock at Maysville, Irvine, and Owensboro, 
245 at Godman Field, Kentucky, 430 later at Nashville, Tennessee, 535 at Godman Field again, and 725 at Lockbourne Air Force Base in Columbus, Ohio. So that's just, you could uh, sort of trace a path between different places using that, but it's a very strange path. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and uh, at the time, from what I understand, um, most of the winds were blowing from east to west. So uh, the the direction and like the course that this thing supposedly took it didn't wouldn't really follow that wind. You know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't line up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, we'll get into that in a little bit after the basic story, because one of the, spoiler alert, one of the most prominent explanations is a weather balloon. But uh, yeah, let's get back to, so the basic, basic narrative here that we're talking about is uh, four P-51 or F-51, depending on which nomenclature you're using. I had to look this up because some accounts talked about P-51 Mustangs and others talked about F-51. I was like, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. Are those the same thing? And apparently it is the same thing. It's just, just uh, around this variants. time, the I think it was in 1947 that the Air Force was created and it went from being controlled by the Army to the Air Force and then they changed it from P to F, from the designation for fighters, basically. In a nutshell, without getting into some long convoluted discussion of the nomenclature. It's essentially P and F are mean the same thing. It's just, they changed over yeah. to the air force. So the I F think most people know it as a P 51. Yeah. P 51. You know? So that's what I call it. But, and, and as a little side note, if I may, yeah, what a beautiful plane. Oh uh, yeah. That's, 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 that Mustang is one of my favorite planes of all time. I couldn't tell you why it's yes, just like sir. the lines on it. It's a beautiful looking aircraft, man. And I actually, it's kind of funny. Uh, after uh, when I was doing some of the research, I, I took a little break and uh, I, I went on some aviation websites to see if like there was any for sale, and, and there actually there is. Oh yeah, <laughs> they ain't cheap. That's for damn sure. No, but, yeah. I mean, Tom Hanks, or I mean, uh, Tom Cruise has one. Pretty oh badass. really? Yeah, he owns no one shit. and operates it himself. Yeah, it's like one of the yeah. few that's still operable. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't expect in my lifetime that I'd probably ever be able to afford one, but if I could, I would. You know, I know treat how much? to the human eye when you could see it in live flight. I mean, it depends on the model a, and a it mill. depends on the condition, of course, as well. But uh, like one of the more expensive ones that I saw, but it was a real pretty aircraft, man. It was it was over $2 million. Hmm. Um, I think it was a P-51D, if, mm -hmm. I, if I'm uh, remembering correctly. But man, what a beautiful aircraft. Mostly chrome. I think they uh, the name of it was This Is It or something like that or some, something like that. But Yes, it holy is. Crap, what a beautiful <laughs> aircraft. Mostly, plane. Yeah, yeah. There was, was a mostly, free... Free Blue Angel show. Sorry, they had a, a a free show down on the coast in California, and they had a P fifty one flying next to an F twenty two Raptor. So it was uh -huh. kind of like modern and past flying together, nice. and it was just a true treat to look at. I I, oh, I love it. Nice. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, Makes no, me no feel all, all. Uh, yeah. patriotic. No, I just, I'm, I'm done. It does. America. Well, could you imagine seeing thousands of those things in the air? Like hundreds of thousands? That's just crazy. I mean, just the amazing roar those things create. It's yeah. Beauty. Yeah, they are. Oh, man, they are nice looking air. That is for sure. They are nice looking. It, for anybody looking to buy one, you actually don't have to buy an original one. Just like they have kit cars for very rare cars, they also have sort of like replica airplanes, but... That's that's maybe um, a topic for the aviation nerds, not this show. But anyways, all right, let's get let's get into it. So the the encounter we're talking about, even though the the uh, UFO was sighted all over the damn place, 
We're talking about the specific incident that was near Franklin, Kentucky. So the the individual that's most notable in this case was Captain Thomas Mantell. He was the flight leader of the four-plane flight that was sent to intercept. One of the planes was low on fuel and returned very early to base to refuel. The other three continued on to pursue the object, was, which was high above them. They had to enter a steep climb to get closer to it. And they couldn't, like, when you're, like, the airplanes back then, we're talking about propeller-driven airplanes, they couldn't just go, like, straight up vertical like you might be able to in a a more modern jet aircraft. So they kind of had to, you know, circle around to climb up to it. But they got pretty high up there, at least for an airplane. And uh, the, the two pilots who were accompanying Mantel didn't really get a good look at the object before they peeled off. Uh, only one of the three remaining pilots had an oxygen supply, but it was low, so he was not able to really utilize that. Accompanying Mantell were Lieutenant Clements and Lieutenant Hammond. At about 15,000 feet, they, they broke off the chase because it's, I think it was 14,000 feet where the Army regulations said that they were required to use oxygen to go any higher because that's at the point where you can start to like get really faint and even black out. The air gets really thin up there. So yeah, they, epoxia. Yeah, so they leveled off flight and decided not to continue. Mantell, on the other hand, did continue the pursuit. And Absolute Chad. Yeah, he said he was, uh, he said he was um, going towards it as fast as he could. Or no, no, so he said the object was going up and forward as fast as I am, or about 360 miles an hour. He told the tower he would continue it until about 20,000 feet, an abandoned chase if the object was no closer. He continued on, and according to the Air Force, he blacked out at around 25,000 feet from the lack of oxygen. Before he passed out, he described the object as metallic and of tremendous size. Now, this is a very important description because it's kind of disputed whether or not he even said that. At least the Air Force disputes that he said that. But we do have good sources that say that he did say that, and that's we'll get into that a little bit later. Anyways, Mantel's plane spiraled out of control and fell to the earth, crashing on a farm just south of Franklin at about 3.18 p.m. What about, I guess, exactly? Well, that's <laughs> when his watch stopped, right? Yeah, that's they, they know the time exactly. So when he was up there, they lost sight of him. And this is before the days of really detailed radar and all that stuff. So when the other two planes that were in the flight left, they didn't they lost sight of Mantell and they weren't really sure what happened to him until his plane crashed a couple minutes later and they were after the fact able to determine the time because um this is before the day of like quartz watches and everything so it was a mechanical watch and when he crashed that made the watch stop working. Whereas, um, you know, like a more modern, like quartz or digital watch would have a much better chance of continuing to work. And, you know, if it was a digital one, it wouldn't even show the time. It would just be broken. So by 3.50 p.m. in the afternoon, the Godman Tower observers could no longer see the UFO. Or could they? We'll We'll get to that later as well. The case received national and even international attention. And as we already mentioned... You know, it pretty much changed the narrative of how UFOs were perceived. There was wild speculation about what actually happened. 
And some said that he was shot down by an alien craft. Others said the wreckage was irradiated and radioactive. Some people said the plane disintegrated midair, which, you know, clearly didn't happen. Happen. We have photographs of the wreckage, so we know that didn't happen for a fact. But it just goes to illustrate just how wild the rumors were that were flying around. And it went on to kind of influence things after it. And for example, oh, my favorite example is that uh, in 19, the 1956 movie Rodan was inspired by this case, which I didn't know that. I was like, really? Okay. I didn't know that either. Yeah, it's like one of them Godzilla movies. Oh, I saw that on Wikipedia, <laughs> so it may or may not be true. You know how Wikipedia is, but hey, I yeah. saw it on the interweb, so it must be true, right? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we talking about Rodan, the Godzilla enemy? Wait, what were we talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, beautiful. Yeah, I thought, really? That was inspired by this? Okay, sure, why not? Hell yeah. Yeah, I would have right. guessed that. A giant pterodactyl <laughs> yeah. screeching through the air. It, it sounds like a weather balloon. Why not? <laughs> All right, so the, I found reports of the conversation between Control Tower at Godman and the flight, or, you know, in this document, they were calling it NG-869. Colonel Hicks said something to the effect of the object was traveling at 180 miles an hour, about half my speed. Lieutenant Orner said that it was high and traveling about half my speed at 12 at the 12 o'clock position. Sergeant Blackwell said something to the effect of the object was traveling at 180 miles an hour directly ahead of and above me now and moving about half my speed. Which, wait a minute, Blackwell's on the, in the tower, I thought, so that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Maybe he was paraphrasing what one of the pilots was saying. I don't know. But anyways, uh, I'm, I'm trying to close in for a better look. And at 15,000 feet, the object directly ahead and above me now, moving about half my speed, it appears metallic and of tremendous size. I'm trying to close in for a better look. Yeah, yeah, that's what he said. That's what uh, Mantel supposedly said. So yeah, this transcript is just saying it's... Uh, Forget that I said it was Blackwell. I, that Blackwell did not say that. <laughs> yeah, these are not the droids you were looking Redacted. for. Redacted. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe edit <laughs> that bit out. I don't know. Um, so anyways, the general, the Air Force said that Mantel blacked out and that his, you know, his plane lost control and fluttered to the ground. But um, when you look into it, it there, there are some questions. There are some really big questions as to whether or not that actually happened. And I've got a whole lot of uh, documents and quotations and things to discuss and that kind of point in different directions. But now that we have just the very basic incident, which is that Mantell went, he saw something, he kept flying after it, and then he crashed and died. Um, I guess I'll turn it over to the other agents to kind of open up the discussion a little bit. Agents? I think one of the most important things about this case is, is uh, the people involved. So there, there was a lot of statements from many, many military employees. And the way that they state uh, what they saw, what they observed, is very matter of fact. You know, and, and um, it's an official statement as well that they're giving to the government. You know, so I, I don't think that they, would, they would elaborate or make up anything, try to be like, you know, grandiose or anything about their explanation of what they saw. It, to me, it, it would appear that they pretty much, you know, gave the minimum, like, straightforward, like, you know, accountment of what they had saw, you know. So, I, I trust these statements, you know. 
I think they, uh, you know, they, they were speaking as truthfully as they could because there's consequences to that if you don't, you know what I mean? And for something like this as well, why would you lie? You know what I mean? Why, why would you try? I, I don't think they were trying to, you know, gain any attention or anything like that from any of the stuff that they said. It doesn't seem like that to me, at least, you know? It's just when it gets to the, the you know, the media, then it kind of goes into the Hollywood X-Files yeah. area, you know what yeah. I mean? Where his body was, you know, shredded apart by bullets and the plane is, you know, radioactive and the crash is magnetized now and all that yeah. shit. So, but yeah, yeah. I, I think it's absolutely 100% reasonable to assume that he did black out from lack of oxygen. Oh yeah, of course. You yeah. Know, it's, and then, you know, you I'm could sorry, start making the the argument, you know, when you reach that altitude, you do start your your brain's desperate for oxygen. And so, you know, it you I do believe that what they were saying is that they were all seeing something and not just because they were all suffering from like a, a low form of epoxia. Um epoxia? Or what's that when your brain's completely just shut off? Hypoxia? Hypoxia, I think. Yeah, okay. I, I don't think uh I mean, I don't think Mantel was having that in the last moments of his life where he was like, you know, oh, my God, it's a Subway sandwich in the sky. You know what I mean? Something uh, completely ridiculous. But if you look at, you know, one of the first early aviators, you know, of our time, and I completely forgot their name, um, but, you know, they were a balloon. They were, you know, when we were getting into aviation and it was just simple rudimentary balloons that we were taking up ourselves we didn't know the dangers of, you know, high altitude sickness and all that. And once there's reports of people that would get up and they would start seeing, you know, butterflies or like insects and stuff that was just, you know, inexplain inexplainable. So, I mean, I don't know when you, these planes were capable of getting up to a higher altitude faster than a balloon. So, I mean, I, I don't know. It's crazy stuff. And I don't know a balloon would be traveling at like what, 500 plus miles either. No, well, it was, no, it was a fast. And it also balloon. wouldn't be moving around in different directions as well. Yeah, yeah right. It got yeah. caught a good headwind. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think one of the uh, statements that I that I read that really kind of uh, I don't know, like it, yeah, jumped out to me the most was uh, by the uh, the tower radio operator from uh, Lockbourne, and his name was Albert Pickering. And um, he says that he observed the object around 1925 hours, which would be 725 p.m. And um, he says he observed an ob object in the sky that he quote unquote could not identify. And let's not forget, these guys are professionals. Yeah, they're younger individuals, but they're they're they know what the heck they're looking at for the most part. And I don't think it was Venus, but um, like they're, they're professionals and, and they've been around aviation for a long time. A lot of these guys have have been in the industry for around five to six years. A lot of these guys that were given their uh, the younger guys at least that were given their statements, but um. Like, like I said, to me, I would assume they know what they're looking at when, when they're seeing something in the sky, you know, they're familiar with, with, uh, the way planes look like and stuff. And anyways, so he said he observed an object in the sky that he could not identify. Um, he said that the object uh, appeared to hover in the sky for a long time and moved very little, which, I mean, if, if you think it would be a balloon, that's, that's, you know, that could be likely, but, um, some of the other stuff that this object did uh, does not appear to correlate with uh, what a balloon would be doing. You know what I mean? So he said uh, he saw it in the sky for a very long time. Um, and he said it disappeared once for about a minute or so. Uh, and he just assumed it had uh, gone up into the clouds. And actually, that's a, a, a good point, I think, to make as well, because um, the skies were overcast during this time. As I so, say, uh, visibility was somewhat low. 
Yeah, absolutely. So if it was Venus, you would think that you'd be able to discern, like, you know, uh, um, you know, that like being behind the clouds or something like that. And also obviously wouldn't be moving anywhere either, you know, be a stationary object, I would think. So he says that, um, you know, the, the object, uh, what, uh, was about 10, 10,000 feet up. Um, it descended and, uh, it, it disappeared for about a minute or so. And then after it descended again, below the cloud, below the overcast, uh, he says it circled in one spot for a duration of about three, three sixty turns. Um, then it moved to another position and then circled some more, which to me, like, it's almost like if that was a UFO or something, they must've been scanning something or observing something. You know what I mean? They're, they're doing some research or something, maybe, you know what I mean? But, um, he says, uh, when it was moving from one place to another, he could observe a tail, like, uh, almost like a, uh, an exhaust of some sort that, that was coming off of it. Now, when it moved up and down, it, it didn't do that, but only when it was moving, like, you know, um, you know, from one place to another, he could see something like that. Um, he said he didn't know the distance from him to the object, so he couldn't really estimate exactly how big it would be because uh, he didn't know its exact location. But he said that um, he thinks it was about the size of a C seven C forty seven plane, which is um, from uh, if I remember correctly, I think a C forty seven is like a large. Um, uh, what is it called? I think it was called a sky train. I think it, uh, it was, uh, but it was a military transport aircraft. Oh, yeah. It was the, yeah, they towed in gliders and stuff. And coincidentally, yeah. Mantel used to fly those before he shifted to the yeah. P 51s. Not a small plane. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, a decently large plane, you know, they're still in use today. I mean, they're little puddle jumpers. It. Yeah. No, like, yeah. Great. Well, they were, those things were made to last back then. You know what I mean? But Hey, they so, still do. So, so uh, obviously, it wasn't the same shape as a C-47 or any plane that he had seen. Um, he described it as being round or oval-shaped. And he said um, just before uh, leaving, it came very close to the ground. And uh, he said that he didn't know whether it may have touched the ground or not. But um, he said it's, it came very close to the ground. And, and then um, seconds after, it climbed very fast at a, at a high rate of speed um, back up to the altitude of about 10,000 feet. Um, he said, he, he said it leveled out and, uh, it disappeared back into the overcast heading about 120 degrees. Um, so he said it, he claims that it's speed that he thinks it's speed was over 500 miles per hour in level flight. And that is fast. You know what I mean? I mean, there, there's planes that can go much faster than that, but that that's moving quick, dude. So, I mean, if you thought that uh, you saw something that was moving at that rate of speed, I, I think, uh, you know, it's not Venus. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, he also said that uh, he did see like a um, an amber colored light um, that was emitting from it. And he didn't know if like the, the, the craft was emitting its own light or if it was like just reflecting light. But um, he said that it, it wasn't so bright to where he couldn't see the outline of the, uh, the craft or vehicle object, whatever you want to call it. But uh, so he could still see the outline of it. Um, he said, uh, also when it was moving up and down, it was like, like very stationary and it was moving. He described as like an elevator, uh, climbing and descending vertically, you know? Um, but I, I do think that like the, his, his, uh, description of the exhaust hill was, was, is very important because if that was for say like a, you know, a weather balloon or something like that, I don't think you would see something like that. I mean, th there's possibilities of, uh, you know, light refraction or something like that coming into play here. But, you know, um, I, I just, I got to assume you probably wouldn't see something like that. You know what I mean? Um, so 
at any rate, uh, the statement that he made, and, and um, I'll read this uh, this quote here, and I think it's very important because he was, like I said before, very matter of fact about what he had observed. And so he says, um, it positively was not a star, comet, or any astronomical body, to the best of my knowledge of such things. I also rule out the possibility of it being a balloon, flare, dirigible, or military, uh, military or private aircraft. Uh, end quote. So, I mean, that is as matter of fact as you can get about something like that. You know what I mean? And, and like much. I said before, these guys are professionals, and they I, I believe that they know what the heck they're looking at. You know, so... Yeah, uh, his uh, his statement, his account of what he saw, I think to me was one of the, and there's other ones similar to this as well, but this is the one I'm I'm choosing to mention. Um, yeah, that's one of the ones that really stood out to me, you know, and and uh, made me really think, you know, like like, God, I don't think it was a, a balloon or Venus or something like that. It had to have been something that seems to be intelligently controlled. It was a know? different planet. It was Uranus. Well, it, yeah. oh, it's just your anus, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> if you want to be, if you want to be matter of fact, you know, you go. And you start researching this case and conventional sites like Wikipedia or just news sites, when they talk about this case, they're so matter of fact about, oh, well, very dismissive. It was obviously a weathered balloon and they didn't know about the uh, other projects that were going on at the time. And, and they don't mention these kinds of statements at all. They're not even, it's not like they're glossed over. They're just not mentioned. It's like they're writing their own version of history that makes the most sense to them in their worldview. They're unwilling to, you know, look at other possibilities. Yeah, the skeptical explanation always cherry picks what statements or pieces of evidence best fit their mundane explanation. I found that to always be the case, which is why, I mean, like I used to really read, like I used to be completely skeptical actually, you know, years before I started this show. But the more I looked into cases, I'd be like, wait a minute, the skeptics didn't talk about this, that, or the other. And like, they're, they're only telling like 10% of the actual case. And when you really dig in deep, you start seeing some stuff. You're like, well, actually, you know, and mentioning weather balloons. So the, one of the central ideas here is the skyhook balloon, which, you know, like Wikipedia or whatever, they'll say, well, the, the pilots or the people, that balloon was classified at the time. So nobody knew what it was or anything. But the fact is, weather balloons in general were not classified. So while the Skyhook was classified, weather balloons were a thing and people did know about them. Pilots had seen them before. So it's not like it's not like people would have seen a weather balloon and go, oh my God, what is that thing? I've never but seen anything like it, you know? But wasn't Project Skyhook initially, I mean, I always think about, you know, this is cheesy of me, but like... Uh, the best example is, you know, Christopher Nolan's Batman, you know, like when Project Skyhook is a balloon that, you know, is sitting there waiting for a C-47 or a bigger, you know, transport plane to come by and actually snag that balloon to retrieve the person on the ground. Like, that's what I thought Skyhook was. I mean, that's, I don't know. Um, sorry to throw that I, in I, randomly. I think so. Well, it's no, actually no. very interesting, though. Because like that, that explanation does have like ah, small legs, because um, out of a uh, Clinton County airfield in that area now nowadays it's known is known as Wilmington Air Park, but there there was supposed to have been uh, one of those balloons that was released from that that uh, place around noon that day, so I mean it's possible that maybe maybe one or two of the sightings or or something not all of them I don't think because of the explanation of what people saw. 
it's possible that maybe uh, you know one or two of those sightings actually that somebody did see that that balloon. You know, yeah, it it is po- well, the, There are reports of people on the ground. Yeah, yeah. So the balloon is sorry. Go ahead. Actually, so this is one of the one of the few cases, probably the only case I've seen where a weather balloon is actually a plausible explanation. But before we get to that, the first explanation offered by the Air Force was drum roll, please. I know, I know this because I okay. researched it. Go Venus. Yeah, Venus. Of course <laughs> it was Venus. So hey, is it, it's actually, can I add, and that's by that research group was by Project Sign, right? So, I mean, the, the, yeah, the predecessor, predecessor to Project Blue Book. Blue Book. Well, right. specifically, yeah. that, that explanation was offered by Dr. Alan Hynek. It was pretty quick and it was pretty clear that they were trying to come up with some sort of mundane explanation just to kind of explain away the event. So right away, without doing pretty much with no investigation whatsoever, they just kind of said, Venus. And a couple of years later in 1952, uh, when when uh, Edward J. Ruppelt was ordered to reinvestigate the case for some strange reason, who knows why, <laughs> um, Dr. Hynek again looked at the data, and this time around he said that there's no way it could have been Venus, because Venus, while it was in the sky at the time, it was not visible. We're talking about daytime hours here. And I, I don't know if Venus is ever visible during the day, but it certainly was not visible during the day at this <laughs> time. I've never had anyone go, hey, wow, doesn't that look beautiful tonight? What are you talking about, Josh Mo? Venus. Look yeah. at it. Isn't well, it beautiful? The hell are you looking at? And like, have you ever heard about an airplane pilot going... Oh my God, look at that thing. Let's go get it. It's a UFO. And then, yeah. oh wait, no, never mind. It was just Venus. Uh, it's fucking <laughs> Venus, man. Always yeah. playing with us. I hate Damn it. Venus, always always messing with us. Yeah. That, yeah. That, wait until we see the other planets. That's great. That pesky little rascal. <laughs> but yeah, so that now, was- wait, Now, what- That was their first- Sorry. What's a telltale sign of that though? Of sorry what? to cut in. I have to- What is a telltale sign of it being Venus? Is it because of a green gas-like- Aura or was I think what it's would just location. My... I think it's just location, location. And uh, as the other agents mentioned, there was a lot of media hysteria and public worry right after the case. So I think they were just trying to dispel public worries. And that was the easiest and fastest explanation they could come up with since the whole That's weather yeah. balloon thing was classified at the time. Now, why would you make an effort to quell public intrigue or, you know, like just calm people down you know that's that's sus well acting very sussy as a government you don't want people freaking out and calling in sick to work and taking their families and running to the hills you want people to just kind of chill out go to their jobs and just kind of do what they're supposed to right You, you need that economic output you need that stability in your society and as the government you're like okay you guys don't worry about this we'll take care of it you know and i think that's pretty much what it was is that yeah? Well, they, and also they have to they have to give a appearance so that they have everything under control because they're supposed to. Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So the other explanation that was given this is the explanation that so Rupert couldn't prove it, but the general skeptical explanation and like I said, this is actually plausible was that it was a skyhook balloon. Now the evidence for this is, for example. One witness in Madisonville saw it through a telescope and said that it looked like a weather balloon. Um, 
Now, the Skyhook balloon, I online, I saw one source said that it was made of aluminum, but then I looked up pictures of it, and it looks like clear plastic to me, kind of like, I don't know, saran wrap or something, you know, like if you can imagine what that would look like. But it was a, it was a very large balloon at, at its largest. So weather balloons, when they, they'll fill them, but there'll be like a lot of extra space because when they go up high up, they, the skyhooks in specifically could go up to like a hundred thousand feet or something, which is pretty high up there. They expand because the atmosphere becomes significantly less dense up there. So when it's lower, it looks like really baggy, lots of extra material. And then when it gets up, it'll expand. The skyhook could expand to a maximum size of a hundred feet in diameter. Now, if you look at some of the witness statements saying that, you know, like it looked like a parachute or looked like an umbrella or, you know, it looked like a balloon. Some of the witness statements absolutely sound 100% like a skyhook balloon. Go look at the pictures and look at the witness statements and it lines up. It just does. It's it sounds like that's what they're describing. So it is, that's what I mean. Like it is a, a plausible explanation. If you don't dig too deep, it very well could have been a skyhook balloon. But here's a quote from Rupert from his book. It says, somewhere in the archives, archives of the Air Force or the Navy, there are records that will show whether or not a balloon was launched from Clinton County Air Force Base, Ohio, on January 7th, 1948. I never could find these records. People who were working with the early Skyhook projects remember operating out of Clinton County Air Force Base in 1947, but refused to be pinned down to a January 7th flight. Maybe, they said. The Mantell incident is the same old UFO jigsaw puzzle. So there's actually a chapter I read from his book that talks about this case in detail from his perspective. The reason why I don't I don't want to lean too heavily on that in this episode is because the the Air Force has shown time and time again their willingness or their their propensity of wanting to come up with an easy mundane explanation, as we said. So even though this book does have some really interesting stuff in it, it was approved for release by the Air Force, and I hesitate to take it at face value, and I wanted to kind of come at this one from a different angle than what it says in that book. So I didn't really look at that book for this. I did look at the original statements, and I did look at the Blue Book file, but not what Rupert said in that book so much. Still, you would think that because of the incident and how much attention it garnered that somebody would come forward and say, yes, we launched a balloon on that date. How could they forget? I think they would remember. And the fact that nobody has come forward. Well, yeah, given that there was this was a national, even international incident, you know, a, a state pilot died or whatever. It, you, those people, if they had launched a balloon, they would know for a fact. That's what I'm saying. That was us. Yeah, yes. yeah exactly. And I think the only reason why they may not have commented on that was because it was classified at the time. Yeah, but I'm saying now there has to be someone. Yeah. After that time, when it became declassified, when they were reinvestigating this case, as he states in his book, that would remember launching a balloon on that date. It's not like a random date or something. Yeah. That whole maybe reply just doesn't sit with me. Yeah, and if you if you ask them, did you launch this balloon 50 years ago on this date when nothing else important happened, they'd be like, how am I supposed to know? But yeah, so 
So yeah, it is it is a little strange, and that's why that's why I said I don't want to lean too heavily on Rupert's explanations for this. But um, if you look at it, it like I said, it really does appear plausible that it could have been a balloon. But now let's get into some of the stuff that kind of makes you think. Well, maybe it wasn't a balloon, and there's quite a lot of it. So I found one statement in in the Blue Book files, and it says a witness statement from Captain Dossler, who observed it from the control tower at Godman. In parentheses, we don't know who, but somebody's, whoever wrote up the file, like put something in parentheses, like they're commenting on his statement. It says, in connection with this, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Garrison Wood, who witnessed the sighting, stated that while it appeared about one-tenth the size of the full moon, if the P-51s flying toward it, it would seem that it was at least several hundred feet in diameter or significantly larger than a skyhook balloon. I mean, that's my bit that I added, but a skyhook balloon is a hundred feet in diameter, remember? And this statement says that it would have been at least, at least several hundred feet in diameter. Now this is in the documents, this is in the blue book files, which in 1948 or as in 1952 when they had to re-examine it, they didn't know that this would ever be released to the public which makes them very interesting. When you get into files that were released after the Freedom of Information Act came into effect, you get a whole different tone because at that point they know that there's a good possibility these could be released to the public someday. But in this day, they didn't. So with this statement, this statement, if you take it, it's like, well, okay, if they're saying it was several hundred feet in diameter, it couldn't have been a skyhook balloon. There's no way. The maximum size of a skyhook balloon was 100 feet in diameter. And like I said, when it's at like at ground level or at 20 or even 30,000 feet, it's not, it's not even going to be 100 feet. It's going to be much smaller than that. It doesn't expand to its maximum diameter until it gets higher up in the atmosphere where there's a lot less pressure that allows it to expand. And no pilots. Yeah, and no pilots. Yeah, it, back then nobody was flying a hundred thousand feet in a you know in a propeller piston driven propeller airplane. Right. In the same statement, it also says, after dark, another or the same object appeared in approximately two hundred and thirty four degrees from Godman at a six degree elevation. This body moved to the west, then down. The shape was fluid but generally round with no tail the color changing from white to blue to red to yellow and had a black spot in the center at all times. Hmm. <laughs> Wait a minute. That a does not odd. sound like a weather balloon to me. And this is one of those statements that unless you dig in a little bit deeper, you're not going to find this. You didn't, I didn't see this on Wikipedia. I didn't see it in the reports or whatever. I only found this in the witness statement from the project blue book files. And what does that mean? It had a fluid shape and it was generally round, but the color changed. What does that mean? Like that that's very strange to me. I was thinking jellyfish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jellyfish in the sky, not to go on too many tangents, but there actually are UFO sightings where people reported it as looking sort of like a jellyfish. I don't think we've talked about them on this show, but there, there are some, we won't go into that right now, though, because we've got more than enough to get into for this particular case. All right, another witness statement. Private First Class, Stanley Oliver. He was on duty at the Godman Control Tower. 
He saw the object southwest of the Godman Field. To him, it resembled an ice cream cone topped with red. Again, sounds a little bit like the Portage County UFO chase. Really good case. You guys should check it out. Uh, I forget what episode number that was. That was a while ago, though. I think that was just me and ETA on that episode. But anyways, he said he could not ascertain if it was moving or not. Hmm. All right. Uh, So it was, you know, probably in the distance. And when stuff is in the sky, it's really hard to tell. You have no perspective. So if somebody says it was several hundred feet in diameter, if it's much closer than they perceive, then it'll be much smaller. And if it's further than they perceive, it'll be much, much bigger. And I guess that's, that's a, I mentioned earlier, I was talking about like angular momentum and stuff. And I guess now's a good time to mention, I was trying to figure out how to calculate like the angular size of something when you see it in the sky. So if, if you have an object, let's say that's 10 feet in diameter and it's 10 feet away from you, it'll have a particular angular size. So by angular size, I mean, if you divide the night sky into 360 degrees, one degree will have a specific size of that, right? So if you have something that's one degree in size and you know how far away it is from you, you can find out how big it is. So you basically have three variables. If you have two of those variables, you can you know everything you need to know about it. So if we know approximately how far away this thing was, and based on the witness statements, the altitude of the object, or the altitude of the airplanes that were chasing the object, were, let's say, approximately between twenty and 30,000 feet, at least Mantell was. So we can make some rough estimates based on that. And if we know a skyhook balloon was 100 feet in diameter at its maximum size, we could calculate the angular, the angular size of that viewed from the control tower. Believe it or not, it may sound very complicated, but believe it or not, the math isn't that bad. But also, believe it or not, I'm not really that great at math. So I spent, I spent, I don't know, maybe half an hour looking at this and I came to the determination that I did not have enough time before I had to record to figure, to figure the math out, to come to some estimates. But if anybody listening is good at math, you might be able to help us out here and figure out if this could have been a skyhook balloon based on the known maximum size of the balloon of hundred feet and estimating, let's say, a minimum distance would be 25,000 feet. But that would be if the balloon was directly overhead from the tower, which it was not. And that's where the calculations become a little more complicated. We have the, the, um, the viewing angle, and we have the altitude. So we know we can say for certain it was a minimum, let's say, of 25,000 feet and we can probably estimate some maximum distances based on that. And using a hundred foot diameter, you could definitely determine if a skyhook balloon at a hundred feet could cause the, you know, it could be one for one tenth to one fourth the size of the moon, which would be, um, so that would be, uh, the moon is 30 arc seconds. So that would be three to seven and a half arc seconds. Um, so the, the math is not that complicated, but I didn't have time to, to crunch the numbers myself, unfortunately. So, I would just like to mention agent Anderson asked uh, me to crunch the math and I refused because I didn't want to. She was too busy, like <laughs> watching TikTok or whatever. I was, this I is a true I story. Wanna. 
It's been yeah. a long time. <laughs> but you know what, though? Like uh, some of the estimates from some of the witnesses on the ground and stuff, they say that they think the object that they were observing was about, like from uh, the quote that I, one of the, a couple of quotes actually that I saw, 250 to 300 uh, feet across. Right. So that, that's a sizable object. And, yeah. and, and like I said before, a lot of these people were mil- military individuals that should know what the heck they're looking at. And I don't think that they would see something. And that's like one of the things that really kind of struck me, struck me as well uh, from a lot of the accounts um, from these, uh, these military individuals is it seemed like as soon as they saw it, like they recognized it as something that was very odd. You know what I mean? Like it was, it didn't take them much time to realize or to, uh, identify it as as something that was out of place you know what i mean yeah so like yeah they they definitely knew it was something other than you know what should be in the air uh, according to them you know what i mean twas big yeah and one thing to add to the the angular size conversation is that at one point the tower said that they saw the airplanes chasing the object disappear like is is in other words they could no longer see the p-51 airplanes but they could still see the object clearly now i looked it up the the length of a p-51 is 32 feet the wingspan is 37 feet and the height is 13 feet so if you look at the, the wingspan and the length that's approximately a third the size of a balloon now again somebody out there would be able to use some math to make some determinations but um, I'm kind of a dummy when it comes to math, so I would need quite a lot more time than I had available to me for a weekly episode to, you know, make those calculations. I could do it, but I, I might need a couple months, you know? <laughs> Sheldon <laughs> but, could do it in yeah. his head. We've been watching oh, yeah. some Big Bang, so. Yeah, Sheldon would have the answer for you already, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I think uh, for myself, I can conf- confidently state that uh, I don't care how much time I had, I, I probably wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> I just <laughs> Don't ask me to do math. I will immediately brain fart. Ooga, booga, big thing, sky, scary. <laughs> oh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would, I would need some time. I wouldn't be able to do it that quickly, but I, I could figure it out because I'm determined when it comes to stuff sometimes. And I'm just like, I'm stubborn. And even if I can't do it, I'm like, you know, what? I'm still going to do it. And I just don't give up. So I just, I, I refuse to give That's up. Good. And then I figure it out eventually. But, you know, we had, we had to record. And uh, eventually was long, too long to record. So <laughs> I couldn't do it before the episode, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I guarantee that we have people listening to this that are much, much better at math than I am. And, you know, they, if they want to look through the, dig through the files, uh, if you, actually, if you dig through the files, you can find um, readings. There were, there were readings from different, different points. They were observing this thing using uh, theodolites and taking actual measurements. So we have actual measurements of the UFO that you could use to determine things like this, but um, it's a little above my head. But What the hell I'll, is a theodolite? What did you say? I, I was going to ask the yeah. same thing. What? It's, it's, um, it's a measurement. It's, it's a tool they use for measuring things in the sky, or, I mean, not necessarily in the sky, but just... It's a survey equipment type deal. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He's making it up. I'm I'm making it up. No, um, it sounds good. But I'll put a link it's one to of those the blue book. I'll put a link to the blue book file in the description of the episode, and all that stuff is like the measurements and stuff. You can find it in there. But all right, let's move along to uh, the the next little item that I have here. Um, 
Oh boy, we're already we're we're not that far from an hour, so I don't think we're going to get to as much of this stuff as I'd hoped. But anyways, so in the blue book file, there's a request for the transcript from the from the tower conversation. So apparently, the radio transmission was taped or recorded between the tower and the aircraft. Now, this is one of the controversial things about the case is because if you ask the Air Force about this particular tape, the Air Force says, oh, but you're like, come on. This was, you know, probably at least for the year, if not, you know, the surrounding years, this was probably the biggest case that happened. You're telling me they lost those tapes of those communications. I'm going to go ahead and call Uh bullshit on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there, so in well, the book files, yeah, well, go ahead. I, I, I don't know because supposedly NASA uh, erased the original tapes of the moon landing, right? Which, not to go on too much of a tangent, but like, I, so I'm going to go out and say that, like, I think we actually did land on the moon. But the reason I find that case I so agree. much fun is because there's, there's some little bits of tantalizing evidence. You're like, what the, you would not erase those tapes. Nobody in their right mind yeah. would erase those. What the hell is wrong with you? That's I mean, not that dipshit of history. Like what, <laughs> who, who the hell are you letting that dude behind the fucking, yeah. Who's ever in charge of being able to erase a tape? That shouldn't even be a function. God damn it. Like, yeah. And if you were freaking out, you what? If you're conspiratorial minded, immediately you're going to think, all right, well, they didn't just so, ha- so happen to just, erase those tapes by accident they erased them for a reason what is that reason and maybe they didn't erase them at all it's a big red flag that's just their claim yeah no that's exactly it maybe they just said they erased them you're just gonna stop asking questions if it's destroyed right yeah it's it died in a fire oh maybe they they say that they erased it because they accidentally uh filmed like a you know an obelisk or something on the moon perhaps yeah or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or maybe an alien base or something. Didn't you agents just have this conversation? A, a I think cabin. I missed this episode, but didn't you just yeah. do an episode on the moon landings? Yeah, and by the way, Agent Ether, <laughs> <laughs> Agent Ether did not appear on that episode because I was like, oh, we're gonna do a, an episode on the moon landings being faked, and Agent Ether said. Fuck that. I'm not doing that. That's stupid. That's an exact quote, by the way. It's not. I don't curse. You do too. Not only did you curse, you taught the junior agents to curse. True story. <laughs> you smash bottles. They got to learn at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, whether you, yeah. whether you like it or not, they're going to. <laughs> Let's get Back to the show. All right. So anyways, I was talking about the possibility or the existence of a recording that seems to not actually exist according to the Air Force, but come on, we know it exists. But anyways, there were, in the Blue Book files, there was a request for a transcript from this recording. And in this, in this uh, document, it says, it is the understanding of this office that conversations between the tower at your facility and aircraft in flight within certain ranges are recorded during an investigation 9 january 1948 at godman field kentucky it was learned that such a recording was made 7th of january regarding an unidentified flying object so we have a reference in a document that pretty much proves that this recording happened 
But where is it? It appears that it's this is part of a cover-up because the Air Force claims that it doesn't exist. And this would, if if this existed or not, so we have a couple of witnesses. I don't know if I'll get to their statements because we're we're running a little long, but there are one or two witnesses that said that they heard on the radio, they heard that Mantell said when he approached the object that it was huge and that it was metallic looking. But if we had the recording and he didn't say that, well, all they would have to do is say, well, here's the recording. You can clearly hear that he didn't say that. But apparently this recording, quote unquote, doesn't exist, which kind of makes you wonder, what are they trying to hide? And this is what I mean when when you look at it on the surface, you'd be like, yeah, sure, it was a weather balloon. That matches some of the witness statements. It's an easy solution. Let's go with it. But when you just dig just a little bit deeper, deeper, right away you start finding stuff. What kind of makes you go, hmm, maybe it wasn't a weather balloon because if it was, they wouldn't be trying so hard to cover up what actually happened, which they very clearly did. They very clearly did cover things up. I mean, they're doing what they do, right? Yep. I, I guess they just kind of cover everything up in general, right? So I have I have a lot of just other statements and, man, I have so much stuff. I'm not going to be able to get to all of it. But there are a couple of documents that I did want to get, get to. So here's a document. Yes, Agent Ether? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, you don't like my documents? No, no, read your documents. I was just thinking actually about, I went through some of the Blue Book pages and they had photographs. Yeah. But you couldn't make them out and it made me sad. You can you can find higher resolution photographs. Those are photographs of the cl- crashed airplane. Right. In the Blue Book file that you can find online, it's a scanned image of probably something that was whatever they were using for a photocopy machine back then to reproduce it. You can't really see much of anything, but you can find online better quality images of those, but it's still a crashed airplane and you can't really tell a whole lot. But now that you're mentioning it, one of the witnesses, a civilian witness, saw the airplane falling to the ground and he said he saw it spiral a couple of times, but he also saw it explode midair. Really? Which is highly interesting because one of... One of the suspected narratives is that if this was a UFO and let's say that Mantell was chasing it, possibly even firing his weapons at it, what if the UFO responded to that a a perceived attack or actual attack with an attack and actually blew up his airplane instead of him passing out from lack of oxygen? And I don't think we really got into it that much, but uh, Mantell was an experienced pilot. We're not talking about somebody who had gone up in an airplane for the first time. We're talking about somebody who would be familiar with altitude and the need for oxygen and his own ability to go to these altitudes with or without the need for oxygen. So it's hard for me to imagine he would go up there and go, whoops, I forgot my oxygen. I didn't think of that. We're yeah, talk- he, was, he was decorated. He'd won awards and stuff. Yeah, we're yeah, talking. Yeah, he was a World War II veteran. Yeah, we're talking about a decorated veteran who was, you know, a badass in his own right. So, yeah, to say inexperience is almost a slap to the face, in my opinion. Yeah. So I, I didn't say that. Well, not almost. It would be. It, uh, yeah, yeah. The Air Force narrative, they're like, I don't know what happened. He must have blacked out. Yeah, it's kind of. 
kind of a strange <laughs> explanation. Oh, he's, a, he's a punk bitch. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. Like they're, they're totally throwing him under the bus. Like, I oh, couldn't handle yeah. his shit. But if you look well, at- and if he's willing, if he was willing to go up to that altitude that he did, that would tell me that like he had a, uh, a certain confidence in himself that he could. You know yeah. what I mean? But to be driven to do that, you uh, like you're making a decision right there when everybody's pulling back and you're like, no, I got to see this thing. I mean, that's that's a pretty big call right there. That's a commitment. And whether he knew that he was low on ox right away. Yeah, that's a commitment. That's and that again shows the experience where he's like, I can do this and I, I will do this. So, I mean, I, I don't know. Well, what, like, but what then was again, he seeing you know, that was worth it too? What was he looking at where? You know, he was willing to go to that altitude and, and, and make those risks anyways. He had a wife and, and, and kids too. So, yeah. you know what I mean? Like he must have thought that it wasn't that big of a risk what he was doing. Because obviously I, I would assume that this guy would, would be, you know, he wouldn't want to leave them behind, right? So I don't know. This was the 40s and any little <laughs> excuse was an excuse to bail. No, I'm, just, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You know how those guys were back in the past. It was like, hey, let's have a kid. All right. Nope. Oopsie. Let's bail. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm kidding. I kid. I kid. I joast. Maybe he was married to one of those women that got a job during the war and didn't want to go back to being a homemaker. You know, <laughs> he's like, oh, I gotta- oh, Rosie, Rosie the Riveter. I got to hit the eject button on this shit, man. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Oh, man. <laughs> no, but, Where no. it's like, this This is the sacrifice that will let them get my GI Bill. This is it. <laughs> Maybe she was a bit insufferable. Who knows? Yeah. It was his way of tapping out. You know, I know it's a weather balloon, but you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to keep going, man. I'm done with this shit. Peace out. You guys <laughs> have fun. <laughs> no, but anyways. Fuck you guys. I'm going home. Uh, assuming... Assuming that he was as qualified and knowledgeable as his decorations would indicate, and the fact that a civilian witness saw that, said that he saw the plane explode midair rather than crash to the ground. Now, th- this can be a little confusing because it is possible, and in fact, it is a fact, if something falls from that high of an air altitude, like an airplane, it's very common for them to break up midair, to kind of fall into pieces or whatever, but because of the velocity and the, the frame of the vehicle or the frame of the aircraft can't handle yeah. the forces that but are put upon it. That's not what the witness said. The witness said it exploded midair and the debris was found in like a one mile wide area. So I, I mean, it's inconclusive, right? We don't know for sure what happened, but you, this is one of those, this is like so much of this case you could tilt the narrative either direction that you wanted. You could say that the witness was sort of mistaken or that we're taking it out of context and it just broke up midair and the way the witness described that was an explosion, but it was just a normal breakup that would happen. But on the other hand, you could say that if you take it at face value and that the witness said it exploded and he said what he meant, then something else happened that was extraordinary that caused the plane to explode in midair. And that could be the UFO that he was trying to chase. Now he's not, he's not too unfamiliar with coming under fire though. So, I mean, whether it was the actual plane exploding or whatever it was, he definitely had, I don't know how he was able to fly the plane with the giant balls he had, but like he, uh, he was, yeah, I, I don't know if we covered it, that he was a distinguished flying cross 
airman. Like he, his his heroism in the Netherlands was the you know he was able to get what he he was flying a C forty seven at the time, so it's a different plane, but still he. I mean, the dude was a hero. I mean, like he he obviously saw something that was like worth engaging. And uh, did we get to the Soviet missile thing? Did we get to that? No, not no? yet. Okay, never but mind. But I wasn't quite done with this particular little piece. My bad, my bad. So my bad. there is another statement from a military official who, who I, I, don't, I won't go too far into it because, you know, I'll cut it a little bit short. But basically he said, looking at the way the wreckage was on the ground, it looked like it had just sort of belly flopped there. It didn't look like the plane had crashed. Like a crashed plane will leave like a debris trail. There'll be like a, you know, a gouge in the ground or whatever, like a crash. Look, it looked like the plane had just kind of like plopped down there, which weird. What does that mean? I don't know, but this is what like an actual military person said, but um, I don't want to go too far into this particular part of the narrative because it's highly inconclusive. There's no way to draw any conclusions about it. We can just speculate that it's a little weird, <laughs> you know, but anyways, what were you going to say, Agent Kruger? About the Russians. Oh, no, nothing. No, you said... Oh, uh, no, nothing. You can't just say, we're at the height of the Cold War here, as it always is. <laughs> you can't just mention the Russians and then just... Well, there was that little, that little, like, uh, just explaining what the hell it could have been. And, you know, there was that theory that it could have been, you know, a, a Russian saucer or some technology that are foreign and, you know, are enemies of the state. And that when it got too close, he was riddled with bullets and, like, he was just, he was shot down. So, I mean, if there was an eyewitness on the ground, you know, seeing this stuff, I mean, I don't know if you can correlate that, but, you know, seeing an explosion and whatnot. But there was nothing else I could find that was like, this would be that type of prototype the Russians were working on. They're so hush-hush about their technologies that, you know, hell, maybe they were like getting ballsy and they're like, let's go to America and we'll show them that we don't give fucks. And it's just like, <laughs> as they were doing it, they... Got ran into some issues, and you know they had to shoot somebody. But I, I doubt it. I don't think it was that. But no, I don't know. I just saw that when I was reading, it was like a Russian missile, and I'm like, how the hell is that even? You know, how do you get to that? Or well, you come across, you come across theories, you come across the skeptical explanations, and then you also come across the really far field explanations. You know, as far as, far as conspiracies go, so it can be, you know, extreme. In I either direction. Though. And I one of the things though. I like about our podcast <laughs> is, is we really examine it kind of from the middle. You know, we're looking at all points of view and just discussing the different evidence this, that, that's out there without necessarily. Hey, like, we're just a couple agents that were assigned this case. We're investigating <laughs> it. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. We, we have to be in the middle. So let's get to the next document I wanted to talk about. So this is, again, from the Blue Book Files. And we have here a quote from Captain Hooper um, at Flight Test Operations who stated, We have no experimental aircraft in that area. However, we do have a B-29 and an A-26 on photo missions in that area. This information was relayed to Godman Tower by a dispatcher on duty and a verification on report was asked for. Now, the reason I mention this is because... Um, if So, if this happened, again, like we mentioned earlier... You think that it would have, somebody would have said, oh yeah, yeah, that was our balloon or that was our test, whatever. But here we have an actual statement from somebody saying, yeah, we didn't have anything in that area that could account for this. And again, this is before the days of FOIA. This is before the days that they knew this would get out 
into the public domain. This is what they thought would be classified forever. Forever, yeah. So I this statement. This is you know I've said before, and I'll say it again. When you really dig into the documents on this stuff, you find some really really interesting stuff that kind of makes you wonder and like. If this stuff is all secret and hush-hush and nobody's ever going to see this, why wouldn't they just come out and say, oh yeah, my bad, that was our balloon? We apologize for the inconvenience, right? They would have just said it. But there's nowhere was I able to find anywhere that said, oh yeah, that was our balloon. It's all like, nope, that wasn't ours. We have no idea what it was. We had a B-29, but I mean, come on guys, this was not a B-29 or an A-26. (laughs) I don't know what those are. I don't even have to look them up. I can tell you this was not that, right? Because those airplanes could not hover for an hour and a half and then move at 500 miles an hour or whatever it was that they said it was, right? And then another thing from another statement from this document was when the 1600 East to 2400 East shift reported, or E, the 1600 E to 2400 E shift reported for duty we were advised that a disc or balloon or some strange object was seen hovering in the vicinity of Godman Field. This object was seen by commanding officer and operations officer of Godman Field who advised that they would attempt to send aircraft to ascertain since the size and shape of the object. To ascertain the size and shape of the object. Again, we have another statement that they're basically saying we don't know what in the hell it is. And, you know, if you look at these statements... If it was a balloon, you know, like I said earlier, the the particular Skyhook project that it's suspected to be was classified, but they knew what a weather balloon was, right? If they send up an airplane to intercept it and they get close to it and they'd be like, yeah, that's a weather balloon. All right, well, you know, go go ahead and come home and land. And that's what I mean when I say that, like, when you dig a little bit deeper, right? If it was a weather balloon... You'd think any plane of, of any substantial speed would be able to close on close in on it pretty damn fast, and they'd be able to figure it out pretty fast as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's like one of the things that to me that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you know? Yeah. And so I have a, another statement. So after, after Mantel crashed, they didn't know where he was or what happened to him. So they, one of the pilots, Clements, pilot Clements, um, code NG-800, he... He he's the one who he had the oxygen, but he ran out of oxygen and fuel. Apparently, I think that was the one that had oxygen. So he landed and he refueled and he went back up to look for both Mantell and the UFO. And he went back up to as high as thirty-two thousand feet, but he did not see either the strange object or the aircraft HG three eight six nine, which is Mantell's code. And so he returned to the airfield. Now, this is an important uh, an important statement because, as we all know, <laughs> weather balloons, they don't move that fast, right? So if he landed, and I have, that's that particular statement, but um, I found another statement that I won't read the whole thing because we're, uh, we're going pretty long here. But he went, you know, like 100 miles away from the Godman Field, looking for the UFO and for Mantell, he didn't see either object. If it was a weather balloon, he would have gone, see, he landed, he refilled his stuff and he went right back up and looked for, if it was a weather balloon, it would have still been up there and he would have found it. But he went back up, it was gone, nowhere to be seen. Now, 
as I mentioned earlier, another witness said that later on they saw another object return, and that's the one that was like changing colors and stuff. But the, the, when this guy went back up, there was nothing there. So if it was the skyhook balloon, where did it go? Because those things, they don't just disappear, right? It would have been going straight up. And if there was wind, the wind would have been moving it around a little bit. But as far as I'm aware, the wind does not travel that fast, you know, hundreds of miles an hour to where it would have just gone away and disappeared. Agent Ether, were you going to interject something there? No, I was just petting our dog. Oh, well, he is, you mean our, our resident cryptid? Our cryptid. He is absolutely adorbs, I will admit. And quiet. He's been surprisingly quiet this time, yes. And I'm very, very thankful for that. That's, I mean, I have I have so much more. I don't know if I want to get into too much more of it because we're... Part two, 30-minute power hour? Yeah, we're al- we're already... Right getting a little bit, a little bit long here. There's, I mean, like, for example, I have a document here that said the, the Godman tower again, contacted us to report that there was a large light in the sky in the approximate position of the object seen earlier Then Lockbourne tower and Clinton County tower advised a great ball of light was traveling Southwest across the sky. And I mean, it just, it just goes on and on and on. Like looking at like all the stuff I've looked at, um, and I, I only got to l- less than half the material I wanted to, we could probably go on for another two or three hours. No problem on this. Like it just, it's one of those cases where I had read about it before and I thought, ah, this would be an easy one. Let's just, you know, won't, won't require much. I just take a quick look at it, take some notes. Turned out I was taking notes literally all day and I didn't even have enough time to do as much as I wanted to there. I, we've really have only scratched the surface of this case it goes on and on with all the weird stuff and the contradictions and statements. Yeah. The more you look into it, the witness statements do not match a weather balloon. They just don't, you know, some of them do at the surface value, but when you really dig in, the more I looked into it, the, the harder it was for me to believe that this was a weather balloon as much as that would be an easy statement right? Or an easy explanation. But when you look at all the statements and you look at the fact that the Air Force tries over and over and over again to explain things in a way that are mundane or easy to pass off or even absurd in cases like, let's say, swamp well, and gas. lazy. Or, yeah, lazy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, well, I think it's like a newspaper uh, clickbait back in the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. It'd be just, you know, trying to sell papers. Yeah. When the Air Force first investigated this, they completed their investigation very quickly. Um, I mean, we could go, we could go on and on, and like, there's some really good stuff on the internet. Like, like UFO Casebook has some good stuff, and I don't know, maybe I'll put some links in the description or something. But um, at the end of the day, I can basically say that I, I came into this one thinking that I wanted to do this case because it's a very important historical case, but. Before I did the deep dive, I, I was pretty much convinced it was a skyhook balloon. But after doing it, I'm not so sure. I'm not necessarily willing to say it wasn't, but I'm a lot more skeptical of that than I was. And I'm a, more willing to say the chances are it was not a balloon. I guess I'll just leave it at that. What, what's the record? I'll, I'll look it up right now. But like, what, what's the all-time record you would think for highest speed achieved through a balloon? 
<laughs> yeah, not, <laughs> I know. not 500 miles an hour, that's for sure. <laughs> and here's the thing. <laughs> if it was a balloon, and if, it was, if the wind was fast enough to make it travel, let's say there was that fast, then it wouldn't be observed by somebody at the Godman Tower for an hour and a half. You know, like it yeah. wouldn't just... It wouldn't scoot into the area at 180 miles an hour, pause there for an hour and a half, and then scoot out at 100 miles or 360 or whatever, depending on what, there's different witness statements, but take your pick, 180, 360, 500, it doesn't matter. It wouldn't just scoot in there and then stop and then scoot away, right? I mean. I think that the main thing here is, a, a, let's just face it, a weather balloon is not self-propelled. Right. Yeah. So if it entered a jet stream, let's say if it hit a jet stream, apparently based off of this archive data is that it says the fastest jet stream ever recorded on earth by a weather balloon was a hundred and oh, it was 258 miles per hour. So, and that's 416.5 kilometers an hour, but pretty fast do that here. It sounds anomalous. That was, though. Re- that was recorded. Wait, it sounds anonymous. Anomalous. Or, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> unusual she means unusual yes <laughs> i was gonna say i i know brain work no good uh yeah but that was in japan though so definitely not in our neck of the woods but only 258 miles per hour that's been the recorded unless there was a off day with, and then there was a shitload of wind up there yeah i don't think we're approaching those speeds anytime soon with a balloon and to have it on a dead stop or a hovering pattern and then just to kick up speed fast enough to where it just disappears out of nowhere you know that's pretty suspicious yep yeah little, well little and also sus. for it to maneuver the way that some people described it did you know to stop in an area and then make multiple 360 turns and like it, it seems like it was scanning the area maybe maybe not who knows but you know the the, the maneuvers that a lot of these people a lot of these witnesses describe would not line up at all some of them do some of them do line up with a potentially what a weather balloon could do. But from what I saw, it seems like a lot of them really don't, especially because like some of them, like, you know, some, some of these uh, witnesses describe, you know, the, the object as having like a, you know, a a tail stream behind it. How the heck would a weather balloon ever have any kind of anything like that? You know what I mean? It makes no sense at all to me. You know what I mean? The only thing I could think of that would be even remotely close to that is when we were tampering with, I mean, we actually still use them today. And I think the the Air Force just, just okayed it with the new, uh, like you basically just shove out a butt, like a bundle of rockets or bombs and they're just dangling on a, a balloon or a parachute and it just drops its payload via that way. Like it just kind of hangs there. And then when you're ready to let it go, you let it go. But that's, we're talking about stuff we have now. And so maybe at one time, I know there there was, you know, projects that they were saying, like, we could use weather balloons to bring up a payload and have it go over to where we want to drop it. And I think it was the Germans that were mainly looking into this because they wanted to bomb England. But they could bring up a balloon that would get into the jet stream, head over across the seas and just drop bombs that way. But I don't know, it was very fickle with the remote like triggering system or something like that. But I, I, I don't think that's what we were seeing here at that point, but yeah, I'll shut up. Sorry. Yeah. It's what, it's one of those really fun cases where the more I look into it, the less I feel I know about it, but this was a good one. This was a really fun one to look into. I really enjoyed it. 
But yeah, so I guess that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by listening. No, by listening. Blah. You could really help us out by leaving us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts and suggesting the show to your friends. Keep it strange.